0: got your Bibles and I hope that you do, please turn to Romans chapter 10. If you're new with us, we are walking through Paul's opus, his letter to the Romans. This is our third week in Romans chapter 10 and um, Lord willing, it looks like it'll be our final week in chapter 10. It took us seven or eight weeks to get through nine, but the way the Lord inspired Paul to pull together chapter 10. It just kind of goes together in larger portions that we've been chewing on together. So this morning we're going to be looking at verses 14 through 21. The first week that we were in chapter 10, we actually looked at the last four verses of chapter 9 along with the first four verses of chapter 10 where Paul talked about the necessity of righteousness by faith. That That we don't have any righteousness is what Paul said earlier in Romans. And because of that, it's bad news. Uh, We are hopelessly separated from God because we don't have the righteousness that is required to be in his presence. And he talked about how the unbelieving Israelites were trying to achieve righteousness, but they were trying to achieve it by pursuing a law that they hoped would lead to their own righteousness. And Paul said it didn't. And that was not why the law was given. But he said, "the un, the, the, the believing is uh, Gentiles. The believing Gentiles, contrary to the unbelieving Israelites, the believing Gentiles found a righteousness they were not looking for because it wasn't their righteousness. They found righteousness by faith in Jesus Christ. They were given the righteousness of Jesus by faith in Christ. They they learned what Paul said in chapter ten, verse four that Christ is the end of the law. The purpose." the aim, the goal of the law for righteousness to everyone who believed. And then last week, we looked at verses 5 through 13, where Paul talked to us about how one is made righteous by faith. How does that happen? And he said it happens when one confesses with their mouth Jesus is Lord and believes in their heart that God raised them from the dead. Then, he said, you will be saved, because then you will have Jesus's righteousness, the righteousness that you must have if you are to escape the judgment that we all deserve because we lack righteousness. You will escape that because you have Jesus's righteousness, his perfect life credited to your account by faith. We said that confession of Jesus as Lord with your mouth and and, and believing in your heart that God rose Him from the dead, that those were expressions of saving faith because they represented a response of faith and calling on the name of the Lord to be saved. And that's where we ended last week, the end of verse 13, where Paul said, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So this morning that dovetails into Verses 14 through 21, where this morning he's going to talk about how the message of righteousness by faith is communicated. If everyone who calls on the name of the Lord is saved, then how is it that they come to call upon the name of the Lord? How, what are the mechanics of that message coming to them such that they would respond in faith and call upon the Lord and be saved? So follow along in your copy of the scriptures. From Romans 10, verse 14, down through the end of the chapter. Paul says, How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have. For their voice has gone out to all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will, make, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. And with a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. And I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for the privilege of worshiping you as those whom you have redeemed from the pit, as those whom you have transformed by the gospel of grace, from sinners into saints, from enemies into children. And Lord, now we turn to your word and ask that you would keep us in a spirit of worship, keep us us bowed before you figuratively as we turn to your word, as we humble ourselves before you and before your very breath as they are recorded in the scriptures. Father, teach us this morning, but do more than teach us. We ask, Father, that you would... Change us and transform us, inspire us uh, to be those who have, as Paul says, beautiful feet. Lord, convict where you need to convict where we have fallen short in this area. But Lord, remind us that it is not through our own efforts that we will become more faithful and obedient. It is through a greater surrender to your work in us to allow you to use us and through us to build your kingdom. So Father, meet with us this morning and I do echo Bob's prayer, Lord, that you would bring me your anointing. God, prevent me from saying anything that is of man, anything that comes from my wisdom. But Lord, may your wisdom be driven deep into our soul's such that it would transform us into the likeness of Jesus so that you are glorified through our lives. We pray this in faith, in Jesus' name. Amen. So there are three sections that I want to point out this morning from verses 14 through 21 that are going to kind of give structure to our time in the Word this morning. Three sections that will be three points of this passage the first is that in verses 14 and 15, where we're going to spend the bulk of our time, Paul talks about the delivery of the gospel, the delivery of this message of righteousness by faith. And then in verses 16 through 20, he's going to return to a theme to which he's been in often in, ver- in chapters 9 and 10, and that is the, the, his lamentation over the unbelief of his fellow countrymen, the unbelief of Israel. But then we're going to close in verse 21 by taking a look at the paradox that is the paradox of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. So let's let's look at the first of this, and we're going to spend the bulk of our time here in verses 14 through 15, the delivery of the message of righteousness. Having just proclaimed in verse 13 that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord Shall be saved. Paul now tells us that those who do call upon him, how they do it. How how, how is it that those who call upon the name of the Lord call upon the name of the Lord? What happens there? Now, if if we didn't have chapter ten, which we do, but if we didn't have chapter ten in the book of Romans, then we would just conclude from chapter nine that those who call upon the name of the Lord do so. Because God sovereignly and unconditionally elects them to do so. That he sovereignly chooses them to do so. And we would be right in concluding that. Those who place their faith in Jesus do so because God sovereignly elects them to do so. That's what we learned in verse 16 of chapter 9. Where he says, Paul says, So then it depends not on human will or human exertion, but it depends on God who has mercy. And that is true and right and good, but that does not fully explain the means by which God saves those whom he saves. That only explains the who, not the how. So we could ask, who is it that is saved? And we could answer that question two ways, both which are biblically accurate. Who is it that is saved? First of all, from chapter 9, we would say those whom God sovereignly and unconditionally elects to be saved. But secondly, we could answer that question, who will be saved, by saying from chapter 10, all those who place their faith in Jesus Christ. Because it is only by placing our faith in Jesus, as he says, that we are justified. Only by confessing him as Lord, as we learned last week. Believing in him as redeemer. Calling on him to be saved. All of those are ways of saying, placing our faith in Jesus Christ as Lord. And all those who genuinely do so, as we learned last week, are also those who are saved. So both of those statements would be true and biblically accurate as to whom God saves. But now Paul moves on to address the how. How is it that they are saved? Or rather, what is the means by which he saves them? And that's what we see in verses 14 and 15. And what I want you to hear as we read these two verses again, what we ought to hear and what we ought to see is both the grace of God in providing this plan, but also the mission of the church. Our mission, your mission as those whom God has saved by grace through faith. We see that clearly articulated in these verses. Look at verses 14 and 15. He says, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So as Paul here is describing the means by which he saves sinners, he lists for us five actions that must take place. And I want us to look at them in reverse order. Actually, if you look at that, Paul provides them in reverse order of how they happen. And so I want I want to back them up so that we would look at them chronologically as God uses these to save a sinner. First there is the act of sending, then there's the act of preaching, then there's the act of um sending, preaching Hearing, believing, and calling. So let's look at the first of those. The act of sending, the sending of the sent. Now, who is it that is sent? He tells us here. Preachers. Preachers are sent. So who are the preachers? Is Paul referring here only those for whom it is their vocation to proclaim the gospel? Is this a reference only to those who are paid to do so? Of course not. In fact, I I think I can make an argument that even for Paul, preaching the gospel was not his primary vocation. He was a tent maker. That's what he did for a living. Now, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't pay a preacher. I don't want to back myself into a hole here, okay? Okay. Paul also tells Timothy after, as, as, as Timothy, uh, young Timothy is installing the elders at Ephesus, Paul tells them in that passage, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, which means let them be considered worthy of pay. Not just the honor of serving Jesus, but the honor of being paid for doing so, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. And so, That's okay. You don't have to worry. Paying preachers is okay. But we should in no way limit Paul's reference to preachers in Romans chapter 10 to those who are paid to do so. To those for whom it is their vocation. He's not referring here exclusively or even primarily to professional preachers, but to all those who have been given the ministry of reconciliation, as Paul talks about it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And who are those? Well, that's, that's us. That's all of us. That's everyone in this room who has called upon Jesus to save them. Everyone in this room who is a follower of Jesus Christ, you have been given both the ministry and the message of reconciliation. You are a preacher, a proclaimer. So that is who the sent are. The sent is all of us. All of us in the church, we are are all sent people. As Jesus prayed in John 17 in the high priestly prayer. He prays to God and he says, As you have sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. We are a sent people, sent by God. But what have we been sent to do? Well, this leads to the second action that Paul mentions in this list of actions in verses 14 through 15 that describe the means by which God saves sinners, and that is the preaching of the preachers. So there's the sending of the sent, that's all of us, who have come to Jesus by faith, who have trusted in Christ as our only hope to be rescued from what we deserve. We are, all of us, the preachers. We are the proclaimers who have been sent by God as ambassadors. But what is it that we are to preach Well, the word preach itself insinuates that preaching is the delivery of a message. It's the preaching, the the delivery, the communication of a message. So what is the message that we preach? So the end of verse 15 and the beginning of verse 16 help us with that question. The end of verse 15 says this, As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach, what? The good news. And the beginning of verse 16 says, But they have not all obeyed the gospel. In both places there, this is the Greek word euangelion, which is most often translated as good news. And in verse 15, it is in the form of the noun describing the people who bring the good news. They're the good newsers, if you will. In verse 16 It is the noun that describes the content of the message itself. It is the good news. Most often it's translated as good news in Scripture because that's what it is. It is news. It is a message that is good. And it is the gospel. It's what we refer to as the gospel. So what is the gospel? Well, the gospel is fundamentally news. Foundationally, it is the message that... God has sent his one and only son to redeem lost humanity back to himself. It is the message that man is lost in his sin and that he is hopelessly separated from God, but that God has made a way for mankind, lost mankind, to be reconciled back to himself by sending his son Jesus Christ to live the perfect life that we could never live And to die on a cross in our place so that those who place their faith in Jesus Christ as their only hope are given his righteousness and are forgiven their sin before God because it's covered over with the death of Jesus Christ in their place. And thereby they are reconciled back to God. So, foundationally, the gospel is a message. It is that news. And this news is the message that the preachers who are sent are to preach. The proclaimers who are sent are to preach this gospel. And so, church, let us not be unclear. Let us not equivocate about what this message is that we are to proclaim. The message is not that Jesus came to give us our best life now. The message is not that he will give meaning and purpose to our lives. The message is not that he will change us into the best version of ourselves, or that he will remove every source of pain in this life and give us health, wealth, and happiness. Paul says unequivocally, to the church in Galatia, that if anyone comes behind us and preaches a gospel other than the one that you heard from us, let him be accursed. And so church, let us not be accursed because we confuse the gospel. Let us proclaim this biblical gospel clearly and unapologetically. So the gospel is the message, the news that we proclaim, that we Preach, But it is a message, Paul says, that must be heard. That's the third action that he mentions here. The hearing of the hearers. So we've got the sending of the sent. We've got the preaching of the preachers. That's all of us. But then we've got the hearing of the hearers. The hearing of the hearers. In verse 14, he says, How are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And then he says, And how are they to hear without someone preaching. So our proclaiming of the gospel must be heard. And and if our proclaiming of the gospel is to be heard, then then two things are required. First of all, the proclamation of the gospel must be audible. But secondly, you've got to have hearers. Hearers must be present if the gospel is to be heard. One of the quotes that is often attributed to St. Francis of Assisi is, preach the gospel at all times and if necessary, use words. Now most scholars will note that St. Francis was never was never cited as actually saying that or writing that anywhere. But still... It's a phrase that we've all heard at one time or another. Preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. And the heart and, and intent behind that is practice what you preach, which is a good thing to learn. That, that we need to back up what we say with, what we, with, with, with how we live. But the notion that we can preach the gospel without words is biblically impossible, The gospel itself is comprised of words. It is a message that is comprised of words that must be heard. Now, I don't think this is saying that someone can't be saved by reading about the gospel in the Bible or reading the gospel through a Bible tract, but it does say here that if someone is going to believe the gospel, respond to the gospel in faith, they need to hear it. They need to be presented with its message. As Paul says in verse 17 later, So faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. The gospel is proclaimed and is proclaimed in such a manner that it is heard by hearers. It is heard by the lost. And this is the only means by which God sovereignly has chosen to produce faith in those whom he is saving through the proclamation of the gospel, such that it is heard by hearers. And so we must make this audible. But second, hearers must be present. Hearers must, that's obvious, right? But I mentioned that so that we might pause and ask ourselves, are there any hearers in our lives today? In your life? Are there any hearers within the spheres of influence in which you live, work, and play. Now, what do I mean by hearers? Well, hearers, as they're described here, are those who hear the message of the gospel when it is communicated, when it's proclaimed. So first, we've already covered that we must communicate it, we must articulate it, we must verbalize it. But secondly... We don't preach the gospel to a wall. We don't preach the gospel to an empty room or an empty office. We proclaim it to people, lost people, lost people who desperately need to hear good news. So, who are the hearers with it, that are within your spheres of influence? Where you live, work and play. Are there any? Are there any hearers within the spheres of influence in which you live, work, and play? Or are you just surrounded by found people who have already heard and have already responded? If we discover through asking ourselves these kinds of questions that there are very few hearers, if any, within our spheres of influence, then perhaps We need to operate within some new spheres so that we might be surrounded by those who need to hear. We are called to be different from the world. We're called to be a set-apart people. We're called to be holy unto the Lord. But we are not called to be apart from the world. So often our desire and our longing to be set-apart for the Lord leads us and results in us being isolated from the world. But that's exactly what Jesus prayed that we would not do. He said, as the Father sent me, so I have sent you, where? Into the world. We have been sent here to this time, to this community, so that God might build his kingdom through us through us being faithful to proclaim this biblical gospel so that he might produce faith in those whom he has, is saving. So two more actions in the list that Paul gives us in verses 14 through 15. I want to cover them together. Is fourthly, the believing of, a, of the believers, and then fifthly, the calling of those who call on the name of the Lord to be saved the believing of the believers and the calling of those who call on the name of the Lord to be saved. The first part of verse 14 says, how will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And then from last week, the end of verse 13 says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, I don't want to try to draw too great of a distinction between those words, calling and believing, because as I read them, Paul intends not to draw a distinction between them as much as he... tries to show a connection between them. Confessing with your mouth is the same as calling on the Lord. You can't call on the name of the Lord without believing in Him as Lord. And conversely, you can't believe in Him as Lord without, without also calling on Him to be saved. It's like the words that we looked at from Verses 9 and 10 last week, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Confessing is like calling on him. Those are the same. And, and believing, believing in him as Lord is the reason why we call on him. Our calling on him to be saved is fueled by our belief in him. And we remember from last week that the Greek word believe is simply the verb form of the Greek noun, faith. So believing is faithing. It is placing our hope, placing our trust, placing our faith in Jesus Christ as Lord. It's something that we do with both our mind and our heart and our will as we consciously determine to trust in Christ to save us and not ourselves or anything else, but we trust in Christ alone to save us. And the means by which we express our faith in Jesus Christ is by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to save us. So how does God save sinners? He graciously sends preachers, proclaimers, who preach the gospel message to those who need to hear. And those hearers believe the gospel by grace and call upon Jesus to save them. So, in verses 14 and 15, before we move on, there's, there's much for us to learn, much for us to apply. First of all, we are a sent people. Does that, does that describe your life? Are you living as a sent person? Are you living as a missionary? That's what the word sent means. It means sent by God as a missionary, as an ambassador. As one living in a foreign land, representing a foreign king with good news. Are you living your life as a sent person? But secondly, we are preachers. This is part of our identity. We are both sent, but we are also, all of us, preachers. We are all proclaimers. All those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ are preachers. And what what it is that we preach is the gospel, this biblical good news. But also, we must have these hearers within our spheres of influence. See, the believing on the name of the Lord and calling on the name of the Lord are not up to us. We can't make anyone come to faith in Jesus Christ, but all of the other stuff is up to us. And so let us be a sent people who accept that mantle of responsibility to be proclaimers of a biblical gospel. And may we proclaim it to hearers whom then God will then save by grace through faith. So now after Paul explains how the message of the gospel is communicated, then beginning in verse 16, he returns to a theme in which we found Paul several times in chapters 9 and 10, and that is the lament that he has over the unbelief of his fellow countrymen, the Israelites. We've seen this a number of times in chapters 9 and 10. We're going to continue to see it all the way through chapter 11. In the opening verses of chapter 9, Paul said, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. He laments over the fact that his fellow countrymen were outside of the family of God. In chapter 9, verse 27, he quotes from Isaiah. And he says, As Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. And along with the prophet Isaiah, he laments over that. He cries over that, that only a remnant Will be saved. And then in verse 1 from chapter 10, he said, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Well, he continues that lament over the unbelief of Israel here in verses 16 through 20. In verse 16, he says, But they have not all obeyed the gospel. And then he quotes from Isaiah For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard? From us. Now that's a quote from Isaiah chapter 53. And Isaiah 53 is that famous chapter where Isaiah prophesies of the suffering servant, that the Messiah is one who will come and he will be put to death. He will be beaten for us, he will be striped for us. That, there's a, that, the, that the Messiah will be a suffering servant. And in verse 1 of that famous chapter, that's where Isaiah laments that that not many were heeding the warning of his prophecy. That the promised Messiah would be one who, he says later, was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. And and in verse 1 of Isaiah 53 which is quoted here in Romans 10, Isaiah is lamenting the fact that not many people were listening to that prophecy, much, much less than listening to, listening to it. They weren't accepting that prophecy. And as a result, there weren't many who were looking for a Messiah who would look like Jesus of Nazareth. And now Paul is quoting that verse from Isaiah here in Romans 10, verse 16 to say that most of the Israelites of his day weren't accepting the gospel either. Verse 17 says, So faith comes by hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. Again, it is the proclamation of the gospel such that it is heard by unbelievers that this is the means by which God is chosen to produce saving faith in those whom he is saving. Verse 18 says, but I ask, have they not heard? Have they not heard this message? Paul answers, indeed they have. For their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the end of the world. This is a quote from Psalm 19 where the psalmist is talking about how the heavens declare The glory of God. Verse 1 of Psalm 19 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. So the heavens and the sky are doing what? They're preaching, they're proclaiming, they're declaring something. And so then in verse 4 of that same Psalm, the psalmist says, Their voice goes out throughout all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. And so God has made it abundantly, abundantly clear to them who he is. But Israel has rejected that. They didn't accept that. It reminds us of verse 20 from Romans chapter 1, when Paul said, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. So Paul says it's not as if they didn't hear, they just didn't accept it. They didn't, as Paul says in verse 16, they didn't obey it. They heard it, but theirs was not a saving hearing because it didn't lead them to believe and call on the name of the Lord to be saved. In verses 19 through 20, we hear Paul speak of the unbelief of Israel. This time, seems like it's a curse and a a judgment from God. Look at verse 19. He says, but I ask, did Israel not understand? Here's his answer to that. First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Now, this is a quote from Deuteronomy 32. And Deuteronomy 32 is part of the song of Moses. It's a song at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, Before Moses dies and they cross over the Jordan into the promised land, Moses is is, uh, led by God to record a song. And this song is to be a testimony against Israel because of their unfaithfulness and rebellion, both in the past and what they're going to do when they get into the promised land. And verse 21 of that song is what Paul quotes here in verse 19. I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. And Paul says, that's exactly what's happening in my day. The fulfillment of that Deuteronomy 32 verse is happening today, Paul says. The Jews were becoming very angry because those who were not a nation, namely the non-Jews, the Gentiles, those who were not a people... We're coming to faith in God through Jesus Christ. But what was God doing in that? He was making Israel jealous of those who were not a people. He was making them jealous. Now, now look, at, look with me at chapter 11, verse 11, just, just for a moment. I, see, I want you to see how this is tied together. I also want you to see what we're heading into. In chapter 11, verse 11... Paul says this, So I ask, did they stumble, that is Israel, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, that is the trespass of Israel, the rebellion of Israel, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. So as to make Israel jealous. So does that mean... That God is making the unbelieving Israelites jealous of the believing Gentiles. Yes, that's exactly what that is saying. But further, that further means that God is not done with national physical Israel. Wait a second. I thought he was done with them. Nope, because we hadn't gotten to chapter 11 yet. Look at verses 25 and 26. This is where this is going to lead, and it's going to be fun. In verses 25 through 26, Paul says this a partial hardening has come upon Israel. But it's just a partial hardening. It's not a full hardening, it's a temporary hardening. And it's come upon Israel for now. But only until, he says, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, has come into the family of God. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. So we've got that fun stuff to look forward to in chapter 11. But for now, we hear in these verses Paul's lament again that his fellow countrymen, the Israelites, his fellow kinsmen according to the flesh, are outside the family of God. He laments over their unbelief. First, he does so through the quote from uh, from Moses in verse 19. But then he also does it through the next quote from Isaiah in verse 20. Verse 20 says, then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. Again, Paul says, this prophecy is being fulfilled in our day. The Gentiles did not seek Yahweh. They did not ask for Yahweh. But Yahweh was found by them nonetheless. And it was all according to God's plan. But of Israel, he says, look at verse 21. But of Israel, he says, all day long, I, this is God speaking, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. And this is the the final section, the final point of this passage So we saw in verses 14 through 15 the the means by which God saves, the delivery of the message of righteousness by faith. And then in verses 16 through 20, we see Paul's lament over the unbelief of Israel. And now as we close with verse 21, we see the paradox of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. Compare what we just read from verse 21 with verse, nine, verse 15 from chapter 9. Listen to that. God says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And then Paul concludes that section on the sovereignty of God in electing some to be saved in verse 18 of chapter 9 by saying, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Compare that with verse 21 from chapter 10. All day long, I've held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. God holding out his hands to a disobedient and contrary people being symbolic of God inviting them to repent and return to him. and Stop being a disobedient and contrary people. Do you see the paradox there? My intent this morning is not to explain the paradox, but simply to point it out. If we could explain a paradox, it wouldn't be a paradox, right? But since the scriptures do not spell it out for us, since the scriptures do not explain it fully for us, it remains a paradox, and thus we should resist the temptation to resolve this unresolved tension that we find in it. In chapter 9, we're hit square in the faith with God's unconditional election of those whom He has sovereignly chosen before the foundation of the world to be saved from what we deserve. And then in chapter 10, we're reminded that justification is by faith alone in Christ alone, that we must confess Jesus as Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him to the, from, from the dead if we are to be saved. So our picture of God in chapter 9 was, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. But the picture we have of God in chapter 10 is, all day long, I hold out my hands to a disobedient Contrary people. And church, what we are to conclude is that the God of chapter 9 is the same God of chapter 10. He didn't change. He is the same God. The same God who sovereignly and unconditionally elects some to be saved is the same God who all day long holds out his hands to a disobedient and contrary people beckoning them to return to him. Now, there are some who will elevate man's responsibility over against God's sovereignty and at the expense of God's sovereignty. And when they do so, they lose sight of the biblical picture of God's sovereign grace in chapter 9. To them... The disobedient and contrary people in chapter 10, they're they're the sovereign ones because they hold God hostage by their supposed free will. Conversely, there are others, which is more likely to be the case among us this morning, who so elevate God's sovereignty that they run the risk of losing this picture in chapter 10 of God holding out His hands to a disobedient and contrary people. To them, God's picture, God's offer of salvation to a disobedient and contrary people is not real because they are not part of His elect. And both of those skewed perspectives are categorically unbiblical. Let us state the paradox in no uncertain terms. God is completely and unapologetically and unconditionally sovereign in election, in salvation. But at the same time, man is absolutely responsible for his sin and he is absolutely responsible for responding to the gospel in faith. However sovereign God is in salvation, it does not in the least reduce man's responsibility. And although man is responsible it does not diminish in the least God's sovereignty in salvation. Let let me close by giving you three examples of this paradox from other places in the New Testament. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 25, Jesus says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. That's election. The Father has hidden these things from some and revealed them to others. And then in verse 28, three verses later, he says, Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He's hidden the truth from some, but he invites all to come to him. In John chapter 6, verse 35, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Then in the next verse, verse 36, he says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. All that the Father gives me. That's not everyone. It's just those whom the Father gives to me. And so all are invited to Christ, and yet the Father only gives some to Christ. It's a paradox. In Acts chapter 13, verses 38 and 39, Paul is speaking in the the synagogue at, at Antioch, and he says, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, speaking of Jesus, through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed. And then, just a few verses later, verse 48, Luke says, And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. All are invited to believe and be forgiven, and yet only as many as were appointed to eternal life did believe. And so this is a paradox. God is sovereign in salvation, but man is responsible Let us hold the tension of this paradox without trying to resolve that tension just so that it would fit within our little theological paradigms. God will have mercy on whomever he wills to have mercy. And he will harden whomever he wills to harden. But also, God also stands all day long with outstretched arms to a disobedient and contrary people to the disobedient and contrary and lost people of Paul's day, and to the lost people of our day, from among, among both the Jews and the Gentiles. And he beckons them to come to Christ. And how does he beckon them? What is the means by which God stands all day long with outstretched hands? to the lost of our day, beckoning them to come to Christ. How does he do that? By gathering us together as a church and then sending us out with the message of the gospel to proclaim. As Paul said in verse 15, how beautiful are the feet of those who proclaim the good news. Church, may we be found to have beautiful feet because we accept The mantle of responsibility that God has given to the church. The only means by which he has chosen to produce faith is the proclamation of the gospel through the body of Christ to the lost of our day. May we have beautiful feet that preach good news. Let's pray.